down a lane on a Norfolk farm. The owner of this farm recently received a prestigious farming and conservation award. So everywhere I'm looking, I'm seeing hedgerows that are bursting with life. I'm seeing cultivated margins where in the spring and summer, flowers are going to be growing, which means that pollinators and invertebrates can live there. Uh, there's a return of many, many redlist priority species, such as lapwing and curlew. In the spring and summer, we see swifts and swallows. There's water rail, all sorts of things that would just set many a conservationist heart a flutter and a light. The reason I'm talking to you via this podcast is that we're looking to showcase the work that's going on at the moment in Norfolk, in England, between the farmers that have joined together in the North Norfolk Coastal Group and the partnership organisations, the area of outstanding natural beauty, which is shepherded, if you like, by the Norfolk Coastal Partnership, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, Norfolk Ornithological Association, the Norfolk Rivers Trust, the Norfolk Wildlife Trust, Natural England, all bodies are working together to provide a safe and enhanced habitat for our natural species. Over the coming weeks, we'll be hearing from both the organisations and the individual farmers to hear what's been going on. Sometimes these will be one-on-one interviews, sometimes roundtable debates. Whatever the format, it will be informative, it will be educational, it will be lively, but more importantly, it will open the eyes for what exactly is going on here and what exactly the farming community is doing to reverse the work of the 70s and 80s, which saw so much soil degraded, which saw so much loss of nature and biodiversity. So I invite you to join me. This is the Farming Social Hub. I'm Sarah Juggins. And for the next eight weeks, our series Farming with Nature will be highlighting some of this tremendous work that's being done in the Norfolk region. I am absolutely delighted today to welcome Andrew Jameson, Chair of the Norfolk Coastal Partnership. Andrew, it's a huge and exciting role. Tell me a little bit about it. Well, Johnny, nice to see you here again, Sarah. Yes, it is. It's an exciting role, the Norfolk Coast Partnership. I think perhaps to start with, I'd just say what I do and what it really means to me to be involved in Norfolk and its coastal partnership. I live on the coast myself and I've worked in conservation management and have a conservation scheme on my own land here. And I was very keen to take Norfolk Coastal Partnership and make it more meaningful for land managers and to bring land managers into the job of leading the way to how we conserve our beautiful countryside. So that was the reason why I went into it. I'm chairman and that means that I bring together a large group of scientists and well-qualified people. Our aim now is to get away from scientific designations and towards an easily explainable message about why the Norfolk coast is so important. Yeah, I mean, first of all, just for the people who are listening to this, explain geographically where you are, because I personally think you have got land ownership of one of the most beautiful parts, certainly of the county, if not of the country. So geographically, where are you? Thanks very much, Sarah. I agree, but then I'm biased. <laughs> uh, we're based at Holm next sea. So Holm is between Hunstanton and Brancaster, right there on the coast. It is very synonymous with the challenges and the wonderfulness, which is the Norfolk coast. The challenges is that it is increasingly a bit of a honeypot. People want to come here. They're drawn to the coast because it is such a wonderfully beautiful place. Mm. The opportunity is precisely that as well. 
And that really takes me to the motivation for getting involved in Norfolk Coastal Partnership because I've watched them for a long time, well before doing this job. And I felt that perhaps they were a little bit defensive, a little bit pushed back onto what their statutory requirements were, which didn't really reach out to people enough mm. and didn't get this message across that we can't just be silent, we can't just be a conservation group, we can't just be a business, we can't just be individuals. The net gain, to coin a phrase, is when those three groups all join together. Yeah. And I mean, within that, people might be surprised to hear that you've got a large farming body. So it's not just conservationists. It's not just people who are interested in nature for nature's sake. But what we're talking about as well is this collaboration between everybody, isn't it? It's like farmers, it's landowners, but you also want the public involved as well. This is absolutely right. I mean, the farming community is completely vital to this and not just the biggest landowners but land managers right the way through the AONB. They're out there every day. They see the changes. They see the drop off in a given population of birds or the change in soil structure. They see it and engaging with the farming community is, I believe, key. And our role, the role of NCP, is as a supporter. Our aim is to put Farmers, first and foremost, for example, by the Landscape Recovery Project, which we are promoting now. But the aim for the future is to put managers right there in the decision-making progress. And we must feel that we're not being done to, but that we are doing. Because it is through the work of farmers, of land managers and owners that the whole concept of nature recovery will be delivered. It's the only way it'll be delivered. Yeah. I mean, you and I have met at various meetings and the room has always been packed full of a mix of people. Those sorts of relationships, they're just so important, aren't they? Because the farmers need to know that it's not just about them working hard to make sure that nature has a home, but they've still got to have a business as well, haven't they? So it's important that everybody talks in those respects. You're so right. What it means to me is that you can't have one bit without another bit. Net gain, to me, is a net gain that will support conservation, it'll support the communities that live here, and it'll support the economy. You can't have one without the other. We are so fortunate to be where we are and to live where we are, and it is so necessary to conserve what is beautiful about our landscape, but it's also about health and well-being. People come to this part of the world because they love it, they want to walk in it, they want to feel part of it. The beauty which they come for is because it's a rural economy. Mm. We farming community have made this landscape to a large extent. And so think together, don't think in silos. And that is the real meaning of net gain. That, I believe, is how conservation will be supported by the economy and will in its turn support communities. I am very keen that we will allow these communities to thrive in the future. That means jobs for the future and communities which are not dying out, communities which are not just retirement homes, communities which are not just second homes or why to let, but living, thriving communities in RAONB. That's the thing, isn't it? When I was reading through the mission statement of the Norfolk Coastal Partnership, I think it surprised me to see community taking such a high part in all of that, because I was thinking coast, nature, farming, etc, etc. But of course, 
you've got to have the community there as well. That's got to be one of the biggest challenges, I'd have thought. You know, how do you make it so that young people stay, so that businesses thrive, and so that housing's affordable? Well, you're so right. So <laughs> was, let's take a step back, actually, to answer the client. It's a really key question. I mean, the first interesting point is that when you ask people, which we did in a recent survey, two-thirds of the people asked living in our area didn't know that they were in an AONB. So <laughs> they didn't know that it was special in that sense. I think that one of the reasons for that is that we can, it is a very heavily designated landscape, but we must transcend scientific descriptors to say what it all is about and what it all means. And so who is involved is a very important part of future-proofing the conservation of our coastline. As I said earlier, of course it's big landowners and RSPB play a vital part, etc. But it's all the stakeholders, the smallholders, vital part of what they can do. But it's all stakeholders, the community at large, who we at the Norfolk Coastal Partnership aim to give a voice to in order that they can speak as individuals and feel that they are heard as individuals about what surrounds their community and what their community is part of. And drawing out what people say will help us bring the sort of expertise that we will need to bring to the Norfolk Coastal Partnership, evidence-based expertise. That is something that was perhaps missing in the Norfolk Coastal Partnership in the past and why I wanted to get involved, because we want to stop institutionalizing it, mm. if you like, and stop making it very prescriptive, who it's about planning and who it's about, you know, and make it much more about putting back communities, businesses, first and centre, into the whole concept of conservation mm. and regeneration. It's a huge, almost rethinking of your relationship with all the people within the community. Things like this, talking about it is one way of communicating, but how are you getting the message out there? I mean, you, you've obviously got a team of communication people, but it's the informal messaging, isn't it? I'll give you a, what I thought was a really positive example. I was sitting on the, I think it's now called the Coastliner, the bus that travels along the Norfolk coast, which I think is a great innovation. And I heard the bus driver telling some people as they were getting off about how the farmer, who the field we were sitting in front of, was working very hard to encourage nature. That's the sort of community engagement you want, isn't it? Where people such as bus drivers and, and chefs and waitresses all talk about what's happening. Well. You're so right. I mean, communication is vital. So one of the things that we're doing at Norfolk Coast Partnership is driving a new website, Be Norfolk. Now, if you go on to Be Norfolk, I think it's an absolutely fab website and it's just got all the information. But behind it is really quite a lot of the more progressive thoughts that mm. we're having, not don't do this. You know, if I ever see one of those signs with large hand <laughs> yeah. and saying that, that means we're not getting the message across. Mm. So Be Norfolk is one of the ways. I mean, there are an awful lot of barriers to getting the communication and funding is always a barrier. Yeah. If we can change the way people think about a protected landscape is the key. So it's not just a, oh, it's a place where we can't go. Now I begin to understand why we can't I don't know, let dogs loose mm. during the nesting season on the beach. And to have a bus driver explain that is just brilliant. But I think that's the way to get the message across, to make people understand. And the vast majority, the vast majority of people really happy to engage and really happy to be brought into the tent mm. by being informed about why this is a special place. And the sort of barriers that we see can be got rid of by explaining the natural beauty of this place is it's a landscape, it's thriving, it's 
full of people, but it's also full of wildlife. We're all living side by side. The key is, as you so rightly say, engaging with people in the right sort of way to make that message come across. If we specifically talk about farmers, obviously the government is now pushing hard for things like the sustainable farming incentive to get more and more farmers on board. What other ways can we use to encourage farmers to really jump on board and see this as a long-term thing? Because as we know, politics and political programmes are quite short-term, but we want this to be a long-term, it has to be a long-term thing, doesn't it? Amplifying farmers' voices is the key here, and that is a key role that I want Norfolk Coastal Partners to be. The future for farming in a protected landscape is going to be absolutely crucial and what we've had in the past is very prescriptive measures from government, top-down, clunk, mm. and this is the way you're going to have to farm. It doesn't matter whether you're in North Norfolk or North London, you know, it's just the same. And I think that one of the key things that are going to come out of the landscape recovery is that it's going to be a much more localised, bottom-up, this is what is good for my land and I know because I farm it. Fantastic. Ten years on, you're looking out across the Norfolk coast. What do you hope to see? What do you hope is the outcome of this? Okay. I absolutely hope that we will have brought on what I've sort of expressed earlier mm-hmm. on, that this sense of de-siloing conservation, economy and farming communities, we just don't have that anymore and that people understand, they understand the pressures of farmers, but farmers also understand that people may want to go onto parts of their land. Mm. The conservationists understand that people are going to behave well, by and large, and therefore they should be led through certain areas rather than excluded from them. I think that if we work together, we can make this extremely fragile part of the countryside thrive and be concerned for future generations and that's what I've aimed to do. Andrew Jameson, thank you very much indeed for your time. I'm lucky enough today to be sitting in the kitchen dining area with Michael and Holly Smith in the beautiful location of Burnham Norton. Hello and good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. First of all, I'd just like you to tell me a little bit about your farm here because, I mean, it's a beautiful setting. It's a farm that's been in the family for quite some time, but it's gone through several iterations. Yeah, my father first started farming there when he was about 10 years old. Back in the 1950s, mm. managed to um, acquire the, and took over the farm from where he was the cowman originally. And we had a quite successful Jersey herd there until the beginning of 2000. And the economies of scale and the difficulties in running a small herd at the time was disproved too much. So he decided to give up intensive farming Mm. and the uh, Jersey herd we had. As someone who owns cattle herself, that must have been a hugely, I'm guessing, traumatic almost moment. You know, you say goodbye to a herd that's been in the family for a while. How did you and your father cope with that? It was, as you say, very upsetting at the time mm. when that lorry finally uh, pulled away. It was extremely disappointing and disappointing for many of the local people as well, who were yeah. always new to plan their traffic journeys, avoiding them being <laughs> walked down the road, as well as seeing them graze on the freshwater marshes that we have. Yeah. At that time, we had 140 acres, which in farming terms now is, is so small. Some of it was rented from the National Trust, some of the local Holcomb Estate, and a little bit that he owned as well. So, yes, seeing them go was a horrid time and left a huge, huge hole. But that was a real time to change and we had to look at it because financially things just had to be different. Yeah. What happened then? You know, where did the journey take you next on that? It was before the cows went. We'd already started 20 years previously on some land which was very unproductive, some very wet land. Already had established quite a large reed bed with our neighbours. So we started to grow reeds primarily for wildlife 
under some wildlife agreements, which we had with then Nature Conservancy Council, which obviously is now Natural England. So we grew those purely to attract birds. And people were focused entirely only on bird life at that time, um, not worrying about the invertebrates or plants or anything else. They just looked at the birds and assumed that there was feeding on the stuff which was supplied in the ponds and the reeds. Mm. What you're talking about is actually very ahead of its time in many respects. A farmer turning attention to conservation as opposed to trying to get everything from the land that they possibly can. Again, that was a big mindset change for your father and for you as well. It was, but it, it seemed to be so natural. Mm. It seemed to be just relaxing what we did, raising some water levels, and, and given a, a relatively small proportion of the land, which was pretty poor in terms of trying to graze cattle anyway. Yeah. And the payback was seeing some wonderful, attractive birds that came into the site, lots and lots of reed bunton, various other wetland species. Mm coming in and you know it gives an absolute pleasure when you're walking along certainly when the cattle graze their fields and whatever as well and we're out checking them you know we get enjoyment for looking at this stuff as well we're not purely there looking just at the cattle we'd like to be in a nice place as lots of other people do as well holly when did you enter the scene ah well we married in the late 1990s michael was very into the farming but obviously even then a family farm didn't support lots of different family members as part of that farming group. And so Michael already worked in the North Sea, didn't you? Yeah, I worked for an oil company. Yep. And so um, we married and raised our family. And I very much started to take over the farm administration as and when Michael wasn't here to pick up the rest of the stuff. And we sort of did it together. At a certain point, the farm transitioned far more from your family into being in the younger generation to those that had a bit more time and it was a bit of a challenge with young children but we made it work and we're very much a family farm and lots of the enjoyment we do get is that our children do enjoy coming and getting on with farm work at the you know weekends when they've got time off work we'll go and do projects together yeah rather than bring in contractors to get bits and pieces done yeah so so, so what does I mean what does a working week for you Holly look like when Michael's having his rest on the oil rigs and away what does a working week for you look like in terms of what you're doing on the farm oh well a working week for me (laughs) generally takes on lots of different formats which does actually mean that most of the mornings after I've done the school run that I've still left with and other bits and pieces I have to go around check the boundaries, check the gates, check the water levels, especially during times when, you know, we've had a couple of winters, we've had lots of floods, a couple of summers we've had droughts, really check that everything is okay, check that no one's taken any access that you shouldn't have done. We've got one or two other small projects that we just have to keep an eye on, and we also graze geese on some of our land, so they need to be checked three times a day. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of jobs that are really heavy lifting that... I normally, when Michael's home, delegate all to him. (laughs) And when he's not here, especially when we've got ice and snow, do actually take a substantial amount of time. So I can actually normally spend at least two hours out of a morning getting all those jobs done before I can actually get back and do the admin. We struggled that when the tenancy was given up, we lost all the barns and all the storage Mm. and various other bits and pieces. So sometimes we have to move stuff quite a long way to get down there. And it's limited the amount of equipment we have. Also, equipment's in other people's garages Mm. and other people's barns and bits and pieces. It takes quite a long while to get them back onto site and use them. And that is a challenge as well. We've got four boys, keeping them enthusiastic. Two of them specifically really enjoy working out there as much as I did as a child. 
when we go back to those challenges, I think the challenges of not having farm buildings mm. is one of the biggest ones we have, which means that everything has planned. to be, has to be planned really yeah. carefully. So even when we've got time when we've got frost and ice it does actually mean I mean at one particular point before we got ourselves sorted we were filling up massive containers of water and putting in the back of our truck to drive out daily so that all of the livestock had fresh water that we couldn't maintain by any other means and so you know that's not a nice job to be doing every day and you have to watch the weather and check all the stuff what was your background? Were you farming at all before you married here and came into farming or was it the steepest of learning curves for you? No, um, my father was a horticulturalist mm. and so he comes from a farming background of sorts, although very different and ran a small holding mm-hmm. near Burnham Market. That means that I've got a background of the rural area and Mike and I only grew up a mile apart. So that kind of means that we have a lot in common. But we first married, I was a teacher. So I spent a lot of time and I was a geography teacher. So I have a lot of information and much of the educational background I have is based upon ecology as well, mm. which does give me a bit of a sounding that I can build on. Yeah. And as soon as you find a bit of a niche, you can build the education levels and you can follow those interests. And it is an area that does interest us both yeah. in terms of nature conservation. Yeah. Would you say now that you're veering more towards conservation possibly than farming? Is that the direction of travel for you both, would you say? Well, I'm probably pushing a little bit more there, but we have to be realistic that whatever we do needs to maintain a profit. Now, I don't need a huge profit, no. but we just need to at least break even to keep yeah. the area as, as it and is. And presumably as well, if you've got at least two lads who are looking to go into farming, you want something as well for them to come to. Absolutely, and keep in the area, even if it's part-time. Yeah. If people want to look into that river valley going down by that watermill at Burnham Movie State and see it maintained how it is, they need to understand that people need to live here, work here, and be prepared mm. to um, go out in all weathers and all times to do that sort of bit. We're only 67 acres, so we can't afford massive amounts of mm. equipment. You've got to be as efficient as you can be with that space, haven't you? And I do a lot of things manually, yeah. but actually if you look at the economics has driven us to do things in a very very traditional manner and inherently those traditional manners means that you just do a little bit each year rather than get big machines in and do it all and that's exactly what the ecologists and environmentalists want as well Mm. they want to maintain habitats and have reeds at different heights grass at at nice levels they don't want to see things completely changed overnight and then all grow at the same speed so actually we're almost economically forced to be environmentally friendly so Mm. i think the great thing around it is is with some of the grants that are available, with some of the learnings and availability um, that we hopefully get from the coastal group, we'll be able to tweak and change some of what we do to make it even better than it already is, because it's already a very, very special area. The other thing as well is you're offering an example. At the moment, I'm sure you won't mind me saying, you're a small farm amongst several very, very large landowners, aren't you? Yes. Which can be a disadvantage, but it can also be a huge advantage because you can show on a micro scale what could happen if things are done in a certain way, as you've just said, swords at different lengths and all that sort of thing. So looking at agriculture as a whole in this country, there definitely is a place for the small farmer still, isn't there? There is definitely a big place for a small farmer, but that small farmer needs to be supported. You know, if we look at the grant scheme, I think the grant scheme is wrong. It should be biased a little bit more towards smaller holdings, yeah. even if it's the first you know, 20 acres, you get more money than you do for the next 20. Mm. 
if we look how some of the farms are on the continent, still very small family-run farms, there's time and place for great big commercial grain barons and vegetable growers because that's the only way we're going to feed the country. But the little pockets in between can be very, very small, Mm. but very, very productive in terms of the nature conservation, in terms of what we can try, experiment and allow others to scale up. Yeah. How successful has all your conservation biodiversity work been so far, would you say? I think we've had some huge successes. I mean, we've got a number of Schedule 1 nesting birds down on the site. Yeah. We've had the huge biodiversity audits that says it's some of the most biodiverse land in the area. So it's some really nice ability to demonstrate that what we're doing is obviously working extremely well with mm. nature. We really enjoy being there. There's lots and lots of walkers that we go past on, say, on the coastal path. I have the binoculars out there looking over. Lots of people take pictures of the cattle grazing, especially in the summer. We have a grazier that comes in and grazes from May to October. And just explain to people who are listening to that, because cows get really, really bad rap sometimes about the damage they do to the environment, but actually they can be a really good guy in all of this, can't they? The whole management of these wetland areas simply will not work without grazing animals. They need to be there. Um, they keep the swath at different lengths. They drop dung, which attracts beetles, invertebrates, all these various other bits and pieces. They fertilise the land. We've put no fertiliser on any of the land for nearly 40 years. So the animals do that naturally, but you don't want them there all year. What you don't want is them in the winter when it's um, extremely wet, making muddy gateways, Mm. poaching the ground, making muddy paths and whatever. So it's around that balance between letting them take away the grass, turn it into good fertilizer, because if not, you know, you have to put mechanical means on, you end up just burning diesel, hydrocarbons, just to keep the area how it is countryside is not mown it's Mm. not a cricket field it's not a playing field they need to be productive fields and the only way to do that efficiently is through grazing brilliant has anything surprised you holly in the last few years you've been wandering around looking at everything as it happens has anything made you go wow we're really making a difference here the massive amount of different things we see on a daily basis Mm. is quite phenomenal when it comes to you know seeing an otter seeing a kingfisher regularly And just generally, when we go and do our daily rounds, the amount of things that we get to share in our lives that other people don't, even when it comes down to neighbouring properties, the pink feet, the noise and the whole experience, you know, you can walk down on our farm and when you get a display of the pink feet coming into the neighbouring sugar beet fields on... on, It's incredible, isn't it? It's so incredible. It's better than a really good sunset. Yeah, is the truth, because it just swallows you up as an experience. And I'd probably say the fact that I get that every day when my fingers aren't so cold that I'm carrying water around. When you get those moments, you know, you can enjoy because not every moment's a moment to enjoy, but there's always something you can take out of it that's really positive. What's nice and what surprised me is how much that's part of our everyday life. Yeah, fantastic. The important thing is to recognise that the people who actually know how to manage this are the people who are there and seeing it every single day. It's people like yourselves. Your intimate knowledge of this landscape means that you can make decisions and you can make recommendations that actually somebody's sitting in an office somewhere miles away trying to talk to somebody else. They can't make a rational decision. So that's a really important point that you've made there, definitely. Yeah, and I think rely on people that know that local area, Mm. give them a little bit of autonomy and accountability and have a quick on-site meeting and then go away and, and 
important just to do stuff. And I mean, that is one of the things that I think from talking to you, you would like to do more of. It's about collaboration with other people. It's making sure that the wonderful wildlife you've got here can actually go elsewhere because your neighbours are also doing some intelligent things with their landscapes. But it's also having the agencies understanding what needs to happen because of the information that you're supplying. Is that a fair summation of where you're sitting? Yeah, it is. And when people judge what's going on on the land and think, why are you doing that? You shouldn't be doing that. Just understand that what we've got out there is because we do these elements. You're looking at this wonderful site, you're looking at the wildlife, you're looking at the grazed areas because the area is being grazed, it is being farmed, but it's being farmed in a sensible, environmentally conscious way. So we ain't doing anything wrong or you wouldn't be looking at what you're doing now, but can we do it a little bit better? And I think there's a little bit of scope for that through education, training and understanding. That's a wonderful point to wrap up on. Have you got anything to add to that, Holly, or is, it, is that the uh, yeah. the closing statement? Yeah, they're, they're my sentiments entirely. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very, very much for your time, both of you, and uh, really good luck with everything that you're doing here. Thank you. Thank you. That was Holly and Michael Smith, farmers on the North Norfolk coast. Prior to my interview with Holly and Michael, we heard from Andrew Jameson, chairman of the Norfolk Coastal Partnership, which is responsible for maintaining and enhancing the area of outstanding natural beauty within Norfolk. This is the Farming Social Hub and its Farming with Nature series. Our thanks for supporting the programme go to the Norfolk Coastal Partnership, Natural England, the National Trust, the RSPB, Norfolk Wildlife Trust, Norfolk Rivers Trust, the Norfolk Ornithological Association and the University of East Anglia. Thank you very much for listening. Tune in next time for episode two of Farming Social Hub's Farming with Nature series.